every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Randy Frisch, Chief Evangelist for Content Experience at Uberflip. Uberflip is a content experience platform that enables marketers to create digital experiences with content for every stage of the buyer journey. Randy has led the content experience movement, prompting marketers to think beyond content creation and focus on the overall destination. He's also been recognized as one of the top 50 fearless marketers in the world by Marketo. In this episode, Randy shares his insights into why demand gen marketers are leading content curation, how personalization is being used to drive business and gain customer trust, and the power of marketing content to reflect what people care about. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Randy Frisch, Chief Evangelist for Content Experience at Uberflip, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by a special guest. Randy, how are you? I'm excited to be here. As, as we said just before, it's been too long. Indeed. The last time we spoke was quite literally years ago. Um, feels like lifetimes ago. And I'm excited to learn everything new that's going on at Uberflip and to share that with our listeners. So let's get into it. First question, how did you get started in marketing? In marketing, I thought marketing was cool as a kid, right? Like Super Bowl commercials, that, that hooked me. Somewhere along the way, B2B was sexier. I don't know how that came to be, the BBB beat Super Bowls in my mind, but every step for me, I always got drawn into marketing. Yeah, I, I did my undergrad in it and then went back and did an MBA. I, I was like, all right, for MBA, I got to do the finance courses. And, they, and I signed up for them all, took them for about 10 days and then dropped them all for more marketing courses. So I just always got pulled back in. And, and I think to me, it was that mindset of connecting and telling a story. A lot of people say that's what I am as a storyteller. Um, and I think, you know, great stories connect people in so many ways. And so flash forward to today, you have a new role at Uberflip. Tell me about your new role. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I used to say I have the dream job because I would say, you know, I'm a marketer and I'm, I'm the CMO of a MarTech company, but I'm no longer the CMO. And I, I made a big, bold decision to hire someone to replace me, which was an exciting thing to do. I mean, it, in one way, I was very lucky to be a co-founder of this business. So I, I don't know how much I earned the CMO title versus gave myself the CMO title, but we got to a point where we've scaled as an organization so much. I mean, so many people, so many big brands use Uberflip and the market is really caught on to the importance of content experience. It's a term that's in, in more people's dictionary on a day-to-day -day basis and go-to. We felt ready to bring on that CMO who could help us with scale. But despite many rumors, there were a lot thrown my way that I wanted to spend more time with my family. Not true. COVID covered me there. Um, you know, <laughs> checkbox. It was more so 
it was the right time to bring that person in. But for me, it was going to give me an opportunity to go into a full-time evangelism role. And to a degree, you can marry that back to my point of being a storyteller. But the stories I'm focused on telling are not me getting up and preaching. It's more connecting and talking about how our customers, how our community, even those who aren't customers, but are doing great work in content experience, really trying to elevate that and make it more relatable to everyone who's starting to lean in. So as of this year, I am our chief evangelist. I had to explain to my father that that has nothing to do with preaching. Everyone's really excited for me and I, I'm, I'm really pumped to be jumping into this. Well, we're excited for you too. And we're excited to learn uh, all the inner workings of, of Uberflip here. So let's get to our first segment called the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Taking a step back, what does Uberflip do and who are your customers? That's a great question. So what we do has always been this this mystery to so many people. And and I think it's because we are in a world of so much confusion. I mean, you just say the word content to begin with. And some people associate that as the copy inside of an email. Some associate it as the image they drop in through their dam. And very few think about how we actually package content. That's what we're all about. And I remember back when... Yov and I started this company. We actually just hit our 10-year anniversary, which is pretty cool in itself. A decade of doing this and still loving doing it at that. But I remember when we started, everyone said, well, you should help companies figure out how to create content. We were a little late in our minds for doing that. There were some cool companies out there. I remember early days, cool companies like Capost and Contently and NewsCred. Some of them have moved on or been acquired since, but they were all really helping with that. And, and we looked at it and remembering at the time, like HubSpot was really big. They were like, I'll go create content. Marcus Sheridan was great about telling us why we should create content on their behalf. And we said to ourselves, well, what's going to happen when everyone creates this content? What are we going to do with it? How are we going to leverage that content? How are we going to get it in front of the right buyer at the right time? And that was what we wanted to figure out. Now, we were early though. I mean, I I feel like we were many years early to come to market, but that really gave us an ability to work alongside marketers as they were creating this content to understand what problems would follow. And that's everything around how we get people to consume content and how it's packaged and how we convert people off of that. Now, the the last thing I'll throw in there that's kind of cool is there's been a lot of evolution for us as consumers along those 10 years. I mean, you go back and we used to listen to music 10 years ago purely on Apple iTunes. Like no one was really using Spotify back then with this idea that you would open up an app and a playlist would magically be built for you that was tailored to what you want. Even Netflix, I mean, only some of us had started to probably subscribe to Netflix some 10 years ago. And experiencing that element of logging in and them knowing what you want. So what we've seen over those 10 years with the evolution of our platform is marketers now trying to emulate those experiences, trying to be like Spotify or be like Netflix in how they serve up the right content to the right buyer at the right time. It's so funny to look at content from that lens 
and just all of these things that now seem so obvious of like the way that Netflix is laid out with all these tiles and how you select. And I mean, you think about what is it? A fire stick remote. I remember I bought a fire stick and they send you the remote. It's like tiny thing. And, and there's basically just five buttons. You're like, wait, but we had all this stuff. And you're like, oh, it's a completely visual experience. All you need to do is just click around. It's a good point. And as you describe this, I, I almost feel like there was this period where we overcomplicated everything in our lives, probably including marketing. We just tried to do everything. And you yeah. think you think about that example I just gave a moment ago of Spotify. And and I love those words when you open up your Spotify app. I mean, some of you may be listening to this podcast on Spotify, so you know what I'm talking about, which is made for you. They're such strong words. And you think about that when we were younger, and some of you may not remember this, I apologize. But when I was like 12, 13 years old, I was building playlists for every girl I had a crush on. Now, there are only so many girls and there are only so many playlists that we could create, but there was a simple time, right? Like, first off, you could only choose 12 songs because that's how many fit on each side of the cassette, right? Like you couldn't, you know, maybe squeeze 13, but really it was like 12 songs per side. The B side wasn't as good. We were limited on how much content we could squeeze in. And we put a ton of thought into that. The years that followed, our iTunes libraries became just thousands of songs that we paid 99 cents for. Just as with marketing, we got to this point where we were creating so much content. We have thousands of eBooks, hundreds of videos, but our buyers really just wanted that playlist, that hand curated playlist that says, you understand me. That's what Spotify gave us. That's what I think we're getting back to, thankfully, with marketing right now, is this ability to say, I may have created hundreds or thousands of assets, but this buyer, and, and Gartner tells us that it takes 11 assets to, to get to that through that buyer journey. This buyer needs 11 assets. These are the 11, and this is what I want to put in front of them. That, I think, is the simplicity of marketing. I love that. Let's just go there now so that because it's top of the mind here. What are those 11 assets? Does it differ for every company? What are those? That's a great question. So first off, I think it's not just different for every company. I think it's different for every buyer. And that's something we need to be mindful of. As we know, in the average deal cycle, you got your champion, you got your adversary, you got a whole bunch of other people on the periphery. I mean, the numbers of buyers leaning in is somewhere around nine as well. So you start to create all these permutations and expectations of what we need to bundle together to ultimately get someone over the line. When you think about format, I, I, I think it's still an important topic to, to be mindful of. And I, I was actually looking at a study by HubSpot just from this past year, and it was highlighting just the leap in videos presence in our content strategy. I mean, first off, we know people are watching video more and more than they ever have. Those numbers are staggering on their own. I don't have those numbers handy, but we all know it. But when you look at the, the type of format that it's being seen, video was always kind of like moving up, but now it's the number one format in people's content strategy. Ebooks, on the other hand, have dropped way down. Like they're really low. And that makes sense, right? We want really quick digestible content. We want a lot of it. We want variety, but we don't want to necessarily sit there and read a 20 page document versus be told how we can better learn from people who are sharing best practices. No different than this podcast would probably be up on that list where it wasn't not too long ago. I love all that. The fact that 
it's different for every buyer. It's different for every company. It's different for every product SKU. We talk a lot about personalization, right? Like that's like a, a pretty hot button word, but like that's what personalization means. It means that for a someone in financial services who's a director of IT, that their 11 pieces of content might be completely different from someone who is in hospitality and is a chief data officer, even though they're buying the exact same product. That is so fascinating, right? Is like serving the right things to the right persona and the right size company and the right industry and all that stuff tends to matter. Now, sometimes maybe pieces of those content are the exact same. Maybe they always watch the demo video. Maybe they always watch a certain case study or whatever it is, but you have to have the right mix there. And, and you talked about curation. How should companies think about curation? It's a great question. I, I want to first go back and, and to answer your question, hit on something you said, which is personalization is all about putting that right f- content in front of people. And it's, it's interesting about uh, a year and a half ago, we went out and we did a, this really interesting survey. We, we went out to two groups, very logical groups. One group was marketers, over 200 marketers. Then we went and asked the exact same question to 200 buyers, right? And one of the questions we asked them was, when you experience personalization, what is personalized, right? Like, what do you expect from a personalization perspective? So when we asked marketers to answer, their top three were, I know your name, I know your company, and I know your industry, right? That meant that they were delivering personalized experience. When we asked the buyer what they meant by personalized, it was the company understands how to solve my problems, they know my name, and they know my job title, right? There's some similarities mm-hmm. there around name, etc. but the big one that's glaringly missing is the marketer acknowledging that they can actually solve the problem that the buyer has. And it's kind of funny. I mean, we sit here and we say, what is personalization? Everyone knows the name is part of it, but that that was cool 10 years ago, like we've been talking about, right? Like when you got an email from this big company 10 years ago, you were like, oh my God, how did they know my name? How did Blockbuster actually know my name? This is wild. How did they email me like this? I mean, 10 years later, we know how mail merges work. We know how lists work. We know how marketing automation works. And we more so say something like, oh my God, how did I get on this email list? Right? Like that, that mind. Yeah, it's actually it's the opposite. Changed. The expectations have changed. I and mean, that is so Mickey Mouse that you know my name. No different than absolutely when I log into Netflix and I choose my name versus my kids. Sure, that's cool. It's different than my TV experience. But what's really engaging there is that the suggestions of content for me versus my kids is different. And back to that survey, what we need to do is we need to live up to this expectation that we can solve their problems. The way we show that we can solve their problems is saying, here's content that aligns to the type of buyer you are, the stage in the process, the specific products that you may be looking for. That is an example of being able to say that we can actually solve for the problems you have. And I, I, if, if you don't mind, I'll give you a quick example. This is a company called Medtronic, healthcare space. Some of you may know the brand. I actually have type one diabetes. I've used their insulin pumps in the past, but the product that, that we were working with uh, alongside them was their ventilators, which as you can imagine at the kickoff of the pandemic, this, this was not a demand issue, right? Or, or perhaps it was a supply issue, not a demand issue. But what they needed to do 
was make sure that their customers could best understand how to use these. Now, just to give you some historical context, the way they used to service, they'd send out these field sales reps. These technical field sales reps would go into the field where they've sold their products and stand alongside the nurse practitioner uh, clinician and make sure that they knew how these ventilators work because they, they weren't used that often. And overnight, as we know, hospitals were like, okay, forget about bringing even your companion to the hospital when you're sick. None of these reps could come in. So overnight in this moment when these practitioners needed help, they couldn't get it. So what they were able to do was use a combination of process and technology and really ensure that when they emailed these, these practitioners inside the hospitals, that they linked them to the content that showed these are the products in your hospital. Here's how to use them right now. Here's a call to action to reach out to the rep who's assigned who usually would have come to you. And imagine that difference of being in that state of panic like these nurses and saying, instead of having to go to the website and sift through hundreds of pieces of content, here's the 10 that I need to be as close to an in-person conversation. That to me is the ability, as we said before, to solve their problems. And these are much bigger problems than a lot of us think about in a buying cycle. This is how do you actually use a product in a moment of life or death? And I think it's this reminder of, of how we can be there for our buyer regardless of whether it's an in-person experience or a content experience. Let's go back to Uberflip for a second. Who is the buying committee for Uberflip? Who's, who's actually signing the dotted line? Who are the people that are involved? That's a great question. First off, I, I'm going to give you some history, which was we used to sell primarily to content marketers. They were creating all the content. They would, in theory, be responsible for packaging all that content. Now, in the early days, a lot of that was because the use case of Uberflip was something like a resource center on your website or your modern blog experience. But what we saw over the years is as content became more key to our go-to-market strategies, how we sent an email and where we linked to, where an ad would link out to, how salespeople were using it, we found that the people who were actually responsible for packaging up the content experience and distributing that content were more often demand generation marketers. Or today, sometimes it's even someone with a title like an account-based marketer. Sometimes it's people on the sales side yep. who are responsible for sales engagement or sales enablement in these sales operations roles who need to ensure that content can be put into place in that moment. But the real value is making sure that you have the right content. Back to your question earlier, Ian, like these nine buyers going through at different stages, they're all going to need something different. So that's what we need to rise to and be able to, to supply. And there's just so much stuff. We just interviewed the CMO of Deloitte and Suzanne is fantastic. And you think about 175 years of that company, you think about how many different things that they do, think about how big their website is and how much content they have. You're talking about, again, like this, this endless amount of stuff, and you have to be able to structure all of this in a really interesting way to make sure that people don't get overwhelmed. How are they coming in? Is it someone that's coming in through the top of funnel? Is it is it someone who's already a customer? Someone who's Yeah, you're so, you're so right. And I, I think what you're highlighting, and, and this isn't the sexy part, 
of what we do and what we help with, but I always say it's maybe the most important part is with all this content, you give an example of a company like Deloitte. I mean, they have a hundred thousand plus pieces of content in one form or, or another. So it becomes really important that we yep. organize and we tag that content. Now, as I said, not the sexy part. I mean, we just want to get out there and we want to grab and curate is the word we used earlier, the 10 pieces that are going to matter. But how do you index that? Think about it this way. How many people are in your organization and how many of them joined in the last 90 days? How are they going to even know what content was created 91 days ago, let alone six months ago, right? It's really hard for us to keep track of the great assets that exist. And that happens in so many companies. Not all content is going to be evergreen, but some content will continue to have value. So when we take the time to organize that, what we can ensure that we do down the road is make it easier for the different stakeholders in our organization to go and grab that content. Now, when, when you think about organization too, and you think about this audit, don't just primarily associate with like SEO keywords, but also think about it as how are internal stakeholders in your organization looking for content? 100%. One of the things that we do, we actually tag content by Salesforce opportunity stage. If our team member knows that there, there's also a tag for vertical, right? There's also a tag for persona, but also that it's at 60% opportunity stage in our Salesforce instance, here's the content that's going to work to help you along in this journey. That's the power that we can start to do. Now, as much as we do that for internal stakeholders, we got to do that for customers though on the fly, right? The last thing we'd want to do today is log into Netflix. I mean, how many, how many movies and TV shows does Netflix have now? Probably 100,000 too. Probably as much content as Deloitte's got. Imagine logging in there and yeah. the content being organized by date or by title or something like that. Kind of the way we used to walk through the blockbuster yep. aisles. That would be extremely excruciating. What they're able to do is on the fly, look at what you watched last and what you'll want now. And what we can do is use all this tagging structure to match against things like intent. So if you know the intent of a buyer through some of these intent platforms and what they can surface, we can match that to the tags that are sitting on your content. And on the fly, we can distill down to say, instead of showing you these 10,000 assets, show you these 10. Yeah, it, it's a brilliant point. With Netflix, you think of how powerful the trending topic is, right? Because they can surface things like friends or whatever it is. Like that is such a powerful thing is what's hot right now on your website. It's like, oh, a lot of people are going back and reading an article that we posted three years ago. A, that's cool for you all to know. B, because you can like say like, hey, should we do another version of this? Should we, whatever. But it's also really cool for the people who are reading that to know that people are still reading it too. That's what Netflix does. Like how many B2B companies are doing that? And just knowing like how many likes it has or how many shares, if there's some sort of functionality there. But again, there's so much more that we can do when it comes to dirty work of cataloging all of this stuff and tagging it all internally, but also externally showing our customers and our prospects why this stuff is important and that other people care about it too. I'm reminded one of the emails I always open is the yeah. Netflix what's on tonight email. And, and back to this first name element, right? Yep. It's cool that it says, hey, Randy, we've got a show that you're going to want to watch. 
But the, the Randy tells me, yes, they're going to personalize to me. That's the first sign. But what gets me to open that is I know that what they're sending to me is not the exact same email that went out at 2.42 p.m. to everyone in their database. It's curated based on other things that I've had interest in. Imagine being able to do that as a B2B organization or even a B2C company with a high consideration purchase. Because you bought this, you may be interested in this. I, I went to this outdoor event with my kids. I was there with three kids. They gave us a whole bunch of swag. It was, it was a car event. It was like a VW event. And the follow-up email I got was for a two-door coupe. I was just at your event with three kids. How did you not read the cues and send me something about a car that would probably be a little bit more family geared? We need to be able to use the data that's being given to us to translate that into establishing trust. And, and I think that's something that's going to continue to rise more and more. Like there's this thing that we do anytime we open up an app for the first time or any app. And we're asked a few questions. We make these decisions in milliseconds. Can we track your location? Can we access this, that, and whatnot? And it's amazing how our mind works. Like in seconds, our thumbs going back and forth. Do I trust? Do I want trust? Am I going to get any value by letting you access my data? What will I get back in return? And we make these really quick judgments. On Spotify, I think a lot of us end up trusting, whereas other apps were like, eh, I don't know if I'm really going to be able to get any data from here or value back from my data. That's the part that we all have to wrap our heads around is that that's what our consumers are starting to do. Now, you go to a lot of websites. Let's move off like the consumer world. You think about B2B websites and there's that GDPR cookie tracking. I would argue that we're doing the exact same thing there. We are quickly saying to ourselves, if I let them track me, what value can I get in return? And I think when we don't greet them with content that's relevant out of the gate, we don't set that expectation. There's little that they're going to do to trust us on an ongoing basis. In fact, I was looking at research a few weeks back, Deloitte, back to your Deloitte CMO, Deloitte says 32% of people accept all cookies. That means two thirds of your visitors, you got no idea what they're going to do anymore, right? We need to increase that to be more like Spotify, more like Netflix. And the way we do that is leading with this expectation that we will provide value and continuing to do that in the follow-ups that we send, whether it's an email, whether it's an ad, and more importantly, when they click through on those, that the content feels like this journey. I think that there's got to be a lot more show, not tell on this stuff. Like you should, you should be showing them the journey. I think that so much of that is very unclear, especially if you go to a resources tab or whatever it is. And it's just like, here's a bunch of stuff of how it's categorized, how we categorize it. It's not necessarily categorized how like I would categorize it as a buyer, right? It's like, if I were to redesign your resources tab to say, what are the things that I care about is like, if you're going to caspianstudios.com, it's like, what do I care about? How quickly I can launch a podcast or how marketing is going to work for the podcast. But instead, what we do is we just kind of categorize things how like we like to do it or how it's easier. It's the thing I always had against the content calendar, which is like the content calendar 
is inherently like of a media company. The reason why you have a content calendar is to sell advertising. Right. Right. It's like not for the listener. They didn't decide that, hey, it's spring. So we're going to talk about spring trends or whatever. You're trying to match those two things up as, as well as you can. But the reason why you have a content calendar is to sell advertising. The reason why you have a content calendar as a marketing team is just so you can it's, plan. You're so right. I, I, I think you nailed it right at the beginning of what you said there was someone comes to your site at Caspian and it's, what do they care about? Those words are what we need to be thinking more about in marketing is what do people actually care about? That's the content we should create, first of all. That's the content we should package. I think if you look into what content is being accessed and utilized and packaged and curated by the various stakeholders in your organization, you'll actually find that you can probably get away with creating a lot less content. Yes. One of the things that I often hear people saying, oh, we're, we're still trying to create enough content. Well, look at all the content you've created. Try and work with that. Again, some of it eventually has got to go out the door, but that's also an important exercise. And once you start doing that, you'll realize the content you shouldn't create again. You'll realize the stuff that you need to simply update, give a facelift, add a little personalization to and make that stuff better, make it more rich, give more examples, give it more depth. I think that that's, that's exactly right, but it's a lot harder to make something deeper than it is to just make another thing that's more superficial. It's easier to just like write another 300 word blog post. Like that's just the easier thing to do than to go back to the through the last 10, 300 word ones and go, how do we make this richer? I do want to know, you touched on something really interesting about demand gen being a key stakeholder in content. We see this actually with the 40 shows that we create. I'd say demand gen leaders are probably a stakeholder in, I'll just off the top of my head, maybe a fourth of them, or even like leading the account. And I, I find that extremely fascinating because demand gen marketers by and large are not content creators. Usually they're not. And yet they're so embedded with content now that I'm curious, how do you see content and demand? What is the future of these two? Well, I, I, I think there's two words that sound so similar to each other, but they're so different. You, you said it yourself. Demand gen marketers are not content creators, but they are content curators, right? That is the difference. And, and that's, again, what we need to realize is they are actually the ones who are going to determine what goes into that nurture that we send through email. They're going to determine what is the webinar topic, how that webinar is organized on the page afterwards for consumption after the fact. They're the one who's going to be involved in tailoring that big conference event that we may do, right? So the, the mindset there needs to be to empower them to be able to leverage the content that is in your organization, which is all about curation. It's a very different skill too. The creation piece is very creative and, it, and it's a process and content creators are really talented. But I always used to kid, if, if you look at like journalists, because we know a lot of content marketers used to be journalists back in the day. We didn't expect them to lay out the entire newspaper. We didn't expect them to figure out how to sell the newspaper. They just had to create the words that people wanted to read. And, and there were functions that did all these other elements. Same thing in your organization. But ultimately, it is important just as in journalism, it was important for the people marketing that publication to understand what's in there. Same thing with your demand gen team. They need to be thoughtful of what they put in front of buyers at the right time, not just when do I send them an email. 
A lot of demand gen marketers are like, listen, I got the cadence down like no other. But at the end of the day, what people want is relevance. They don't want you to get them at the right time. They want you to get them with something that matters to them. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up your playbook. I know you're not a CMO anymore, but we need you to talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget item? All right. This is a tough one. I was thinking about this one a lot and I'm going to unpack them. So first off, I think it's important to relate to people in a way that they understand. One of the things that we did a number of years ago was we dropped some significant coin on a series of videos to explain what we did. And we all talk about that explainer video and should it be animated or should it be this, that. We decided to go completely the other direction. We talked to a whole bunch of amazing B2B agencies and we ended up choosing a B2C agency to help us with this set of videos. And I encourage people to go check check out uh, any of them. If you go to our homepage, doomflip.com, in that hero area, there's a, there's a video you can watch. We kind of played up the confusion of Uberflip and what we do. And we did this video that the context of it was explain it like I'm five, which is a, if you're a fan of The Office, it was an Office episode where they had to explain things like they were five years old. And it, it's really fun, really clever. And I encourage you to have fun with your marketing and, and do something that is going to simplify what you do in a way that people can relate to and in a way that is memorable to them at the end of the day. So that's that's one piece. Not only do we have that main video, but you, you may find the other three that we did. One uh, was com- comparing an element of what we do to a father packing lunches for his three different kids and the uniqueness. Another one was comparing how to accelerate the buyer journey the way that happens on The Bachelor. And the last was looking at audience intelligence, which is a part of our platform and doing so like you were the characters in Moneyball. We just had fun with things that people could relate to that weren't necessarily marketing, but they were easy for us to understand more complex offerings. So that's my first example. Quick thing on that that I just, I do want to say on that. I love it. And I think that a huge mistake that people make when they think about that sort of stuff is like those type of videos, like foundational or anchor content or whatever you want to call it, they should be disproportionately weighted in terms of the cost that you spend and the time that you spend, right? And people, for some reason, they'll make a new video about whatever, like a new customer video, and that'll be 10 grand. And then they'll make their explainer video and they're like 10 grand. And you're like, no, 100% of people are going to watch your explainer video. 6% of people are going to watch this particular customer video. Allocate resources and time and effort accordingly. Don't don't just say like, okay, well, this is how much a video costs. So this is how much this thing should cost. It's like you should put $100,000, $200,000 worth of work into that, not necessarily like into the production, but of the like scripting and creating and all that and then research and everything else. Anyways. Couldn't agree more. Very well said. All right, let's get to my second uh, big campaign. I, I, you know, as much as the first one is maybe maybe more top of funnel or to bring other people in the organization in, I think my second example is making sure, as we've talked about today, that we can put the right content in front of people, not just through marketing, but also arming our sales team to do so. 
There are so many emails that our sales reps send. As much as we think about that nurture cadence that we send through our marketing automation, salespeople are sending like hundreds of emails and so much of it is serving the right content. And there's certain things I think sales reps kind of do poorly and it's not their fault. So I'm being careful about saying they do it poorly. It's just because they don't have the tools and they don't have the ability to package properly. So we've all gotten emails from sales reps with like six hyperlinks. It's like, which one do you want me to click? Which one of these attachments do you want me to open first? Totally. And do you expect me to come back to that second link and not be distracted by the seven other emails that came in as I was reading your first? Like, it just doesn't work that way. So what we do is our, our team actually leverages our own t- technology naturally for this. It's a, a product we have called Sales Assist, and it lives inside of the email client, whether in our case, we use a combination of Gmail and SalesLoft to do Uberflip to send out our, our nurture emails from our PDRs and our AEs. But they're able to actually go and grab those 10 assets that we talked about that are going to be most suited. They're able to drop the logo. Their face shows up on the page that gets built. And the customer then has this individual experience built for them that shows that degree of trust that's been built. So the way we do that is such a a great way to kick it off when, as we know, more and more people want to do research on their own. They don't want to necessarily jump on a demo right away. They want to understand. Yep. So we're able to package. So that's that's my second one that I think is is really deeper down the funnel. And it's more about alignment between our marketing team and our sales team. One more. I'm going to make this one selfish and very much in line with what we're doing right now. I love the podcast that we do. I love the podcast I get to do, The Marketer's Journey. And I love it in so many different ways. First of all, again, selfishly, every week, and I've I've done hundreds of episodes now, so I've been doing this for quite some time, I get different perspectives to marketing. Just by connecting with a marketer, my episodes are all with CMOs, and, and they're all thinking about and approaching their challenges in a different way. And that allows me to bring some of those ideas back to our team, just getting different perspective as we go. That's a big win in itself. The other thing that it allows us to do that is so important is build executive alignment. Some of our guests are customers of ours with CMOs that we had never connected with before we had them on the podcast. Some end up being customers of ours just naturally, even though there's not a formal pitch that comes with them coming on. So I think a podcast is such a great business development opportunity that even I sometimes say this, even though I know a ton of people fortunately listen to my podcast because there's so much value that's shared by these guests. But sometimes I say, if no one listened to this, there's so much value just in the recording experience. And I believe that to be on both sides, the opportunity for that guest to talk through ideas, us to hear them. It's such an important part for me of how I get our customer's voice. 100% of you're preaching to the choir on the podcast piece there. And I'm super glad that that you said that because obviously we feel the same way. But I think that all of the stuff that we're talking about, I think that a podcast, the reason why it's such a brilliant vehicle is because it's singular in its focus. It has a depth of engagement. There's a lot of things there, but you can go to that one stream, like just like you would go to, you know, the oldies channel on Spotify or whatever it is, it's singular in focus and you know exactly what you're going to get from that. Now, people who make like 
bad shows and stuff like that, it's all over the place and you don't know what you're going to get. And that's really bad. But when you do it the right way, it's singular. And that's what's so brilliant and elegant about the solution is I can just subscribe to this one feed wherever I want to do that, wherever I listen on an app that's perfectly designed. And you don't have to deal with any of that as the company who creates it. You don't have to worry about your UX, your UI, any of that stuff. You don't have to invest in technology. It's already done by a multi-billion dollar company that does that stuff way better than you ever could. Very, very true. And listen, I still think we're still so early in this industry in terms of how we can leverage this. And the production is is obviously really tricky and tough, but the utilization of these podcasts, I think, is the area that we're still still so early in. Yeah. And of course, figuring out who's listening, which we may that, never that may never actually ever know, because I don't know if Spotify and Apple are, are ever going to are really going to ever let us know. Before we get out of here, I want to do some quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to someone at Qualified. If you go to qualified.com, we love Qualified. They're the best conversational sales and marketing on your website. They're the absolute best in the world. They've been with us since the very beginning of this show. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Randy, are you ready? Let's do it. Hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? Ooh, hidden talent or skill. I I become pretty good at driving a boat. And, and I think part of that was overcoming a real life experience where I survived a boat explosion. So, you know, part of getting over the fear was getting back in the water and getting onto a boat. And then I decided to learn how to drive a boat. And now I do it all the time. But you'll have to look up the story of uh, the boat explosion for, for a less quick hit. Yeah, what a teaser. We'll have to bring you back for the boat explosion story. Favorite non-marketing hobby that maybe sort of indirectly makes you a better marketer? You know what? My, my new hobby, I'm going to call it, is when I was younger, I played tennis and... My oldest son is is 14 years old, and the two of us just took up tennis together. We went away, played tennis at this resort that we were at, and we just joined a tennis club and we came back. And it's just a great way, first of all, to get out. I envision it's something I'll be able to do as I even get older and older. But it's also a nice way for me to bond with, with my eldest now. Go out, hit some balls. It's been a ton of fun. Best advice for a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand, gen, and content strategy. It's a great question. I, I, I think my advice is you got to talk to our, your customer. We, we've got to bring it down to something as simple as what story are you going to tell that people are going to want to tune into? And to do that, I, I'm going to take advice that one of the guests on my podcast just shared with me the other day. And it's escaping my mind who it was. So I can't even reference them, but it was, he talked about his first 90 days he substituted his Peloton rides with just listening to chorus phone calls of his new customers. And I, I thought this was like brilliant. I mean, it was a huge sacrifice because I love the listening part of Peloton as much as I love the exercise component of it. But listening to your customer is the best way to understand what content to create. So I think that's where you got to start. You got to make sure that whoever's on your content team has listened to customer calls. They've watched case studies that have existed in the past. They're going to tell you what they want to hear more of. I love it. Brandy, it's great talking to you as always. Everybody should check out the Marketer's Journey podcast. It's freaking great. Go check it out. If you haven't bought Uberflip, go to uberflip.com. Just buy some. Just buy a little bit. 
if you're not a if you're not a customer, uh, check them out. Or or just watch that video. Watch the video just to be entertained. It, it, at the very least, I guarantee you'll be entertained, and then you're going to hit me to find out how you find the the rest of the series there around Moneyball and The Bachelor and whatnot. Tons of fun. There you go. Thanks again to our friends at Qualified. Go to qualified.com. Randy, this is great. Any final thoughts? You know what? Uh, I'll leave it with just create a great experience. That's what we all want in our day-to-day lives. That's why we open up the Netflix app once you're done listening to this or you're on Spotify. They create great experiences and just look to emulate this. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.